Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, November 28th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The US, UK, and 16 other nations ink non-binding AI security guidelines. Israel and Hamas agree to a two-day Gaza temporary ceasefire extension. A House Republican suggests Israel and Ukraine aid is unlikely before 2024. Sierra Leone's government arrests alleged attackers of a military barracks. A Ukraine negotiator confirms that Boris Johnson squashed a 2022 peace deal. Three college students of Palestinian descent are shot in Burlington, Vermont. A cargo ship sinks off the coast of Greece with multiple people missing. Three kidnapped journalists are freed in Mexico. Meta's chief spokesperson makes Russia's wanted list. Joe Biden won't be attending COP28 in Dubai. And U.S. employers are expecting to hire fewer seasonal workers this holiday season. The U.S., U.K., and 16 other nations inc. guidelines to make AI secure by design. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, The Verdict, Forbes, Silicon UK, The Independent, and Tech Monitor. 18 countries have signed a non-binding agreement advocating for artificial intelligence companies to create systems that are, quote, secure by design, with the intention to prevent misuse causing harm to public safety. The document was officially launched at the UK's National Cybersecurity Center, with the event including panelists from the Alan Turing Institute, Microsoft, and other cybersecurity agencies. The guidelines argue that potential AI threats must be considered holistically with cybersecurity. The creation of the Guidelines for Secure AI System Development, led by the NCSC, as well as the U.S.'s Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, has been described by U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas as providing a common-sense path to ensuring AI safety with cybersecurity as the main focus. The agreement advises to raise the cybersecurity levels within AI in order for the technology to be designed, developed, and deployed securely. Signatory countries outside of the U.S. and U.K. include Australia, Canada, Germany, France, Italy, Japan, Norway, South Korea, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Poland, Chile, Israel, Nigeria, and Singapore. The 20-page document includes recommendations such as monitoring AI systems for cases of abuse, as well as protecting personal data from hackers via only releasing AI models after sufficient security tests have been completed. Lindy Cameron, chief executive of the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre, stated that the new guidelines were a significant step in creating a truly global common understanding of AI risk. Ensuring security was not a postscript to development, but rather a core requirement. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We have spins, and the first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from IBC. Governments in the international community have finally woken up to the dangers of AI and have responded by finally setting the wheels in motion to implement meaningful legislation. While many may be worried that such action has taken place too late, it's imperative that the world take steps forward before there is a chance for AI malpractice to unethically influence a series of potentially globe-changing political events in 2024. As the U.S., U.K., Germany, and others move towards general elections, we must ensure that AI is safe and can only be used for good. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Just Security. 
Current AI regulation proposals contain a host of problems that must be addressed. So far, there lacks a consensus as to what should be designated a high security risk, while the lack of binding legislation involving enforcement mechanisms means that great trust is placed in company transparency. While different continents continue to diverge in how they approach AI risk with no single regulator, the question of legislative limits to AI remains an unsolved global problem of extreme concern. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 2% chance that there will be a, quote, AI bust or an AI winter by the end of 2025. How do you feel AI is affecting your day-to-day life? Do you feel it in your day-to-day at all yet? I'm still trying to figure out if you're real or not, Scott. I mean, you're like a, oh. you're like a walking encyclopedia, man. I'm- <laughs> now you're speaking my language. You heard me read that whole list of countries without yes. messing it up. Yes. Just, so then I'm that, like, yeah, this dude I is see. a monster. You know what? I take I that know. as a compliment. If, okay. if, if I was an AI, then I would be a compliment that you're not sure I'm not. And if I was a person, I'd be, you know, also flattered that you're not sure. So I'll take it as a compliment all the way around. (laughs) Israel and Hamas agree to a two-day ceasefire extension. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, Haaretz, Associated Press, Times of Israel, and The New Arab. Israel and Hamas reached an agreement on Monday to extend the so-called humanitarian pause in Gaza for an additional two days, allowing more hostage prisoner swaps and more aid to enter the Palestinian enclave. Both sides confirmed the extension, which was first announced by the spokesperson for the Qatari foreign minister, under the same conditions previously agreed upon. Hamas will release 10 hostages each day, with Israel vowing to agree to further extensions if the group makes good on the deal. This comes as the Israel Defense Forces stated that 11 Israeli hostages, two women and nine minors, arrived in Israel on Monday evening as part of the fourth round of the hostage-prisoner exchange between Israel and Hamas, which includes also the release of 33 Palestinian prisoners. The third swap was completed a day earlier, with the pro-Palestine militant group releasing 17 more hostages, including 14 Israelis and a four-year-old dual Israeli-American citizen, while Israel freed 39 Palestinian detainees. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu told U.S. President Joe Biden that he could extend the truce, but that once it's over, Israel will continue, quote, full power to destroy Hamas, ensure that Gaza won't return to what it was, and of course, to free all of our hostages. Hamas confirmed on Sunday that the commander of its northern brigade, Ahmad al-Gandur, and four other senior leaders had been killed during Israeli's offensive in Gaza, following a statement from the Israeli army. Neither side has disclosed where or when it took place. All right, Eric, we have a pro-Israel narrative on this story from Jerusalem Post. While freeing hostages is of the utmost importance, Israel must not succumb to unfair international pressure. Hamas has a history of forcing uneven deals, and the Israeli war cabinet made the right decision by weighing its options before accepting this temporary pause. It should remain clear, however, that Israel's ultimate goal is to eliminate Hamas from the Gaza Strip, and Jerusalem will continue to work toward this end even if that necessitates a resumption of conflict. The Middle East Eye gives us a pro-Palestine narrative. Israel Defense Forces have inflicted disproportionate damage on the civilians of Gaza, as opposed to on Hamas itself, and further assaults could lead to the deaths of many more. Israel has made a wise choice to bring its citizens home immediately through this temporary ceasefire, which should be extended. This will also see much-needed aid reach Gaza, where an utter humanitarian cataclysm has unfolded. 
And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative on this story, brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time they predict a 50% chance that Israel will announce that it will release at least 195 Palestinian prisoners or detainees by the year 2024. Approval of U.S. aid to Israel or Ukraine is unlikely before 2024. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Hill, Voice of America, and The Washington Post. The U.S. is unlikely to approve military aid packages to either Ukraine or Israel before year's end. Representative Mike Turner, Republican of Ohio, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, said this weekend. Speaking to NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday, Turner said, I think it would be very difficult to get it done by the end of the year. Initially, the White House, under President Joe Biden, proposed a $106 billion supplemental funding request that included money for Israel and Ukraine, as well as setting aside funds for Taiwan, humanitarian aid, and dealing with border security in America's South. With gulfs of opinion dividing Democrats and Republicans on a number of those issues, however, by the time Biden signed into law a temporary spending bill to avoid a government shutdown earlier in the month, a bill that was agreed by both the House and the Senate, The bill did not include any aid for Israel or Ukraine, delaying the issue of further military aid for both countries further into the future. Republicans have since approved an Israel-only bill, but according to Turner, this was rejected by the White House as it did not include funding for Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Republican Party itself is divided as to whether Ukraine should continue to receive U.S. aid as a faction of those in opposition has been growing in recent months. For Ukraine, which is far more dependent on U.S. and Western military aid than is Israel, such support meant a great level of uncertainty. High-level diplomatic advocacy from Kyiv for more support for Washington has reportedly occurred twice recently. However, on both occasions, Ukrainian officials came back empty-handed. In an effort to send reassurances, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin traveled to Ukraine alongside senior military officials early last week. He announced a $100 million weapons package of anti-aircraft missiles, artillery shells, and cold-weather equipment. However, larger U.S. packages will still be dependent on approval from Congress. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And as expected, spins from both sides of the aisle. We begin with a Democratic narrative coming from The Guardian. Due to the instability in Congress created by Republicans, America's future assistance to Ukraine is now in jeopardy. This creates a risk that Ukraine will no longer be able to meaningfully defend itself from Russian aggression. Republicans need to end this political brinksmanship and support Ukraine's aid immediately. And The Hill brings us the Republican narrative. In spite of over $113 billion in U.S. funding, the front lines in Ukraine have barely shifted in months of fighting. As such, Americans are right to ask what the strategy is and how the war will eventually be brought to a close. The U.S. cannot be expected to continually throw money at the war, particularly with problems at home and the national debt spiraling to over $5 trillion. And here's a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 0.5% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. Sierra Leone's government arrests alleged attackers of a military barracks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, BBC News, DW, The Africa Report, and CBC. Most of the people behind an assault on a military barracks in the capital Freetown have been arrested, and an investigation has been launched to bring the perpetrators to justice. Sierra Leone's President Julius Matabio announced Sunday. Unknown assailants had attempted to storm a military armory in Freetown's Wilberforce district, leading to armed clashes with security forces. The country's information minister, Chair Noor Ba, said the attack has been repelled and, quote, the government is in firm control of the security situation. 
The gunman also broke into Freetown's Pademba Road Central Prison and reportedly freed a number of detainees. This comes after several soldiers were arrested in August on charges of plotting a coup against B.O. Following Sunday's events, Sierra Leone imposed a nationwide curfew and advised residents to stay home. Normalcy reportedly returned across the West African country, and its civil aviation authority called on airlines to reschedule their flights. Meanwhile, the West African economic bloc, ECOWAS, has condemned what it called a, quote, plot by certain individuals to obtain weaponry and disturb the peace and constitutional order. Sierra Leone, which suffered a civil war from 1991 to 2002 that reportedly killed 50,000 people, has seen political unrest since Bio's controversial re-election in June. Thanks, Eric. The Sierra Leone Telegraph brings us Narrative A. The attempted coup comes as no great surprise and is one of several recent attempts to overthrow the Bio government. Sierra Leone is in the middle of a severe economic crisis, with frustration growing among its people. The government rigged the 2023 elections to stay in power further deepening political division and instability. Moreover, Bio refuses to implement the peace accord with the opposition, which provides for the release of all political prisoners. Sierra Leone will not find peace if the people's democratic will is ignored. Narrative B comes from The Nation newspaper. While investigations into the events are ongoing, whoever is responsible for these attacks is seeking to disrupt constitutional order. The people of Sierra Leone have fought hard to achieve stability after the civil war, and any attempt to undermine the country's efforts to deepen democracy and consolidate peace and security to promote economic development must be met with zero tolerance. There have been eight military coups in West and Central Africa in recent years, and every effort must be made to ensure that Sierra Leone doesn't suffer the same fate. Semi-joking here, but not really. Even just all the money wasted on, like, new stationery for all these governments flipping in and out over and over again. (laughs) And then imagine everything else has been wasted. I mean, like, it's it's an unbelievably efficient thing to overturn a government, especially multiple times back and forth. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous. The UK's Johnson squashed a 2022 Ukraine peace deal. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by WION News, Sheer Post, Common Dreams, and Ukranska Pravda. David Arakamia, head of the ruling Servant of the People Party in Ukraine, who also led the country's negotiations with Russia in the first months of the war on Friday, backed claims that former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson told Ukraine that the West would not support any security agreements with Russia. The comments appear to confirm earlier reporting from Ukranska Pravda, citing sources in President Vladimir Zelensky's inner circle, stating that during Johnson's visit to Kiev in April 2022, he presented two simple messages for Zelensky. Vladimir Putin should be pressured, not negotiated with, and that even if Ukraine is ready to sign some agreements on guarantees with Putin, they are not. Later, Foreign Affairs, citing senior U.S. officials, reported, In April 2022, Russian and Ukrainian negotiators appeared to have tentatively agreed on the outlines of a negotiated interim settlement. Under those terms, the sources said Russia would have returned to pre-invasion borders while Ukraine would not seek NATO membership but would instead receive security guarantees. This summer, during a meeting with African Union leaders spearheaded by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, Putin even displayed a document he allegedly called Treaty of Permanent Neutrality and Security Guarantees of Ukraine. He further claimed that it was signed and initialed by the lead Ukrainian negotiator before stating it was discarded into the garbage of history. However, in his interview with Ukrainian television, Arakamia dismissed Putin's allegations, claiming that if he had such a document, he would have made it public. 
Arakamia said that in spite of Johnson's remarks to Ukraine, Ukraine was not prepared to reach an agreement with Russia anyway, stating there was no confidence Russia would stick to any security agreements. Arakamia added that in spite of talks falling through, he was satisfied that the delegation achieved eight of its ten priority tasks, one of them being that Russian forces left Kyiv. During negotiations in March 2022, Russia said it would reduce troops from the wider Kyiv region to increase mutual trust. This departure was confirmed by the U.S. Defense Department in early April. However, some analysts suggested that Russia's withdrawal of troops from Kyiv came at a cost of a humiliating battlefield defeat. Thanks, Scott, for those facts. The first bit is a pro-establishment narrative, and it comes from Business Insider. Ukraine is a sovereign country that makes all its own decisions. The idea that Boris Johnson forced Ukraine's hand in how to proceed in peace negotiations is ridiculous. He simply warned that the country that's already invaded Ukraine's borders can't be trusted on peace talks. It's like negotiating with a crocodile that's got your leg. And the pro-Russia narrative from WION News. As Putin has said, Russia was never opposed to holding negotiations. Such talks, mediated by Turkey, were in fact held in the spring of last year. But after Ukraine signed a peace agreement and then, after Western pressure, turned around and threw it away, why should Russia again trust Ukraine? The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 1% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. Three students of Palestinian descent have been shot and injured in Vermont. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, CBS, Al Jazeera, CNN, and BBC News. Three 20-year-old college students of Palestinian descent, one of whom is a legal resident and two are U.S. citizens, were shot in the street near the University of Vermont in Burlington on Saturday evening while visiting one of the students' family for Thanksgiving. Police said the attacker, the now-detained 48-year-old Jason Eaton, fled on foot after injuring the young men. Keenan Abdelhamid attends Haverford College in Pennsylvania, and Tassin Ahmed attends Trinity College in Connecticut, while Hisham Awartani attends Brown University in Rhode Island. Awartani, for whom Brown is holding a vigil, is in the University of Vermont Medical Center Intensive Care Unit with a bullet in his spine. The other two are also in the ICU. Awartani's great-uncle Marwan Awartani, a former Palestinian education minister, reportedly said Hisham, quote, lost feeling in the lower part of his body after one of the at least four bullets fired at the men struck his spinal cord. Brown University President Christina Paxson said he's, quote, expected to survive his injuries, but that there are not enough words to express the deep anguish I feel. Haverford College said Keenan, quote, and his friends are all Palestinian students studying at U.S. colleges and universities adding that we await on whether it will be pursued as a hate crime. Trinity College said Ahmed, who was reportedly shot in the chest, is in stable condition. Authorities said, quote, there is no additional information to suggest the suspect's motive, with both the Burlington Police Department and the FBI saying they're investigating the shooting. However, an attorney for the victims and their families, Abed Ayub, argued it was, quote, a targeted shooting and a targeted crime, adding that they weren't robbed, they weren't mugged. During his arraignment Monday, Jason Eaton, who is being held without bail pending a second hearing, pleaded not guilty. His mother, Mary Reed, told the Daily Beast her son had struggled with mental health and job security but had been, quote, in such a good mood when they met for Thanksgiving on Thursday. Thanks, Eric. France 24 brings us Narrative A on this story. Political, religious, and ethnic tensions have been on the rise since Hamas's October 7th attack against Israel and the resulting bloody conflict in Gaza. An unfortunate consequence of that is the rise of both foreign and domestic extremism targeting Jewish, Muslim, Palestinian, and Arab communities. This horrific incident is a consequence of soaring extremism in a polarizing geopolitical environment, 
And all stakeholders have a responsibility to tamp down toxic rhetoric that can lead to violence. The New York Post gives us narrative B. This is a tragic incident, and the public and media should not jump to conclusions. Eaton has a history of mental health struggles and was observed to be in a calm and positive mood before the incident. As more details emerge in the investigation, the public will in due time learn about the motive and mental state of the alleged shooter and learn key context. Twelve are missing after a cargo ship sinks off the Greek coast. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BNN, Daily Sabah, Al Jazeera, The Hindu, and Reuters. A rescue operation is underway to save 12 crew members of a cargo ship reportedly transporting 6,000 tons of salt from Alexandria to Istanbul that capsized in rough waves off Greece's coast early on Sunday. According to the Coast Guard, the Comoros-registered Raptor, which sank 4.5 nautical miles or 8 kilometers southwest of Lesbos, had a crew of 14, including 8 Egyptians, 4 Indians, and 2 Syrians. The Coast Guard has recovered the body of one missing crew member, while another reportedly has been airlifted from the sea and is being treated at the hospital. In addition to Air Force and Navy helicopters, five cargo ships, three Coast Guard vessels, and a naval frigate have joined the search for the missing crew members. The 106-meter-long ship first reported a mechanical failure at 7 a.m. local time. However, it vanished from radar screens after the captain reported it was listing and sounded the mayday distress signal at 8.20 a.m. The accident occurred amid severe weather conditions. A warning about the approaching storm Oliver, Bettina, from the Adriatic Sea had previously been issued by the Hellenic National Meteorological Service. Thank you, Scott. BNN Breaking gives us Narrative A. While the exact reason behind the ship's sinking is still unknown, this incident highlights how dangerous and unpredictable maritime transportation can be, and how crucial it is to put safeguards in place to mitigate potential emergencies at sea and stop similar incidents from happening in the future. And Narrative B comes from Al Jazeera. Another maritime catastrophe is unfolding in the Mediterranean. We've almost become used to African migrant ships in distress, but this time it's an old cargo ship with a mechanical issue that sank due to poor weather. A vessel like that had no business being at sea under storm-like conditions. Three kidnapped journalists have been freed in Mexico. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, TSC News Channel, Barron's, Al Jazeera, RSF, and Voice of America. Mexican authorities announced Sunday that three journalists who were recently kidnapped in the southern state of Guerrero had been freed without being harmed by their captors. Silvia Arce and Alberto Sanchez of the digital platform Red Siete were abducted from their workplace in the tourist town of Tosco last week. El Espectador Weekly's editor Marco Antonio Toledo and his wife Guadalupe de Nova were kidnapped on Sunday, along with their son, whose whereabouts are yet unknown. The Guerrero Attorney General's office said the search was still on for Toledo's son with the Mexican Army, Police, and National Guard making all efforts to track him. None of the three journalists were reportedly safeguarded under the Mexican government's protection mechanism. The legislation is designed to protect the safety of journalists. Mexico is considered one of the most dangerous places on the globe for journalists, with more than 150 killed since the year 2000. Okay, the LA Times brings us Narrative A. Clearly, the Mexican government's program of providing bodyguards and other security measures for journalists who face threats has failed. Protocols to secure and investigate crimes against media members haven't been taken seriously. A key reason for the continuing problem is inaction against the perpetrators, which conveys that eliminating journalists is easy and free of repercussions. Narrative B comes from Ethical Journalism Network. Like other areas of power in Mexico, organized crime has seeped into considerable sections of the media, too. 
This has made identifying aggressive and effective journalists easy, especially in provincial areas of the country. It's vital to spread more in-depth and contextual information, which helps strengthen the public's confidence. This action is vital to support the institution of journalism in Mexico. And a statistics-based nerd narrative on this story as well. Metaculus predicts a 3% chance that the U.S. will deploy military forces in Mexico without the cooperation of the Mexican government before the year 2029. Russia adds a meta-spokesman to the criminal wanted list. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, The Moscow Times, Al Jazeera, Business Insider, Politico, and TASS. Russia's state-run TASS news agency stated on Sunday that the Ministry of Interior has put Andy Stone, the spokesman for Facebook owner Meta, on the federal wanted list under an undisclosed article of the Russian Criminal Code. This comes as independent Russian news outlet Media Zone reported that a Russian court ordered his arrest in absentia in mid-November on terrorism charges. The communications director for the U.S.-based tech giant has been wanted since February. The investigative committee of Russia opened a criminal investigation into Meta last March, claiming it has incited violence against Russians since the Kremlin moved its troops into Ukraine, as Meta changed its hate speech policy to allow violent calls such as death to the Russian invaders. Moscow officially designated the tech giant as a terrorist and extremist organization following the outbreak of the war in Ukraine last year, allowing legal proceedings against its users in Russia. Western social media platforms, including Meta-owned Instagram, which remains widely popular with young Russians, and Facebook, have only been accessible through virtual private networks in the country. The Kremlin reportedly plans to block a number of VPNs as part of new media restrictions that Russia's Vladimir Putin approved earlier this month ahead of next year's presidential election. Scott, thanks for the facts. Our round of spins begins with a pro-Russian narrative coming from RT. Given that Meta has relaxed its rules to allow Russophobia, as well as its illegal calls for murder and violence against Russians in its social media platforms, it's no wonder that Andy Stone has been placed on a wanted list. The tech conglomerate has violated at least two articles of the Russian Criminal Code related to public calls for extremist activities and assisting in terrorist activities. Axios brings us the anti-Russia narrative. The outrageous and senseless decision to put Andy Stone on a wanted list stems from the fact that Meta has successfully cracked down on Russian state-sponsored disinformation campaigns on its platform since the Kremlin invaded Ukraine. Moscow is desperately trying to retaliate against those who obstruct its nefarious intentions. The nerds from Metaculus have a narrative. They say there's a 10% chance that a post-Putin Russia will substantially democratize within five years. According to a recent report, President Biden won't attend the COP28 meeting in Dubai. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, New York Times, U.S. News & World Report, France 24, CNA, and the Japan Times. According to an anonymous White House official, U.S. President Joe Biden will not attend the United Nations two-week COP28 climate summit set to begin on November 30th. While the official did not provide a reason for Biden's absence when speaking to the New York Times, Special Envoy for Climate Change John Kerry stated last week that the president had, quote, a bunch of things going on, specifically citing current conflicts in the Middle East and in Ukraine. The White House's schedule for Thursday, November 30th, shows the president hosting a bilateral meeting with the president of the Republic of Angola and attending the U.S. national Christmas tree lighting. Kerry will lead negotiations on behalf of the U.S. at the event, with Vice President Kamala Harris's public schedule also showing that she will not attend the summit. 
Over 70,000 international delegates are expected to be in attendance. Kerry has held talks with Chinese counterpart Xi Jinhua prior to the summit, with both claiming the two would work together in Dubai. Biden has spoken at COP events in Glasgow, Scotland, and Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, since his inauguration. Biden called climate change the, quote, ultimate threat to humanity earlier this month, while his Domestic Inflation Reduction Act commits at least $370 billion to clean energy over the next decade. Notable figures expected at the event include Pope Francis, King Charles III, and nearly 200 state leaders. All right, thanks, Eric. Proactive Investors UK brings us the establishment-critical narrative. With the U.S. being the largest producer of oil in the world, the decision for Biden not to attend what may be COP's most important conference is a serious blow to climate discussions. It's more urgent than ever for global leaders to come together, and yet multiple nations continue to refrain from confirming the attendance of major political figures. Without the presence of Biden, Xi Jinping, and many others, the likelihood of meaningful international agreements being achieved at the summit decreases substantially. The conversation gives us a pro-establishment narrative. It is not solely up to national politicians to protect our environment. Business leaders, regional figures, and non-state stakeholders will be integral in influencing cross-border consensus. It is also inevitable that COP28 will see the benefit of the resumption of, quote, soft relations between the U.S. and China. The UAE is set to convene one of the most inclusive conferences yet, with the potential to create decisive change for the world's future. Biden's absence is not a critical path to major success. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that the average global temperature in 2100 will be at least 2.47 degrees Celsius higher than the average global temperature in the year 1880. And that's according to the Metaculus prediction community. Our final story, U.S. employers are expected to hire fewer seasonal workers. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC News, CBS News, News Nation, and The Wall Street Journal. Several major U.S. employers, including the U.S. Postal Service and department store chain Macy's, are planning to hire fewer seasonal workers than last year in a sign that the labor market is cooling. In low numbers not seen since 2013, companies plan to hire 573,000 seasonal workers this year, a decrease of 60% from 2021 levels. Retailers who once struggled to find staff during the height of the COVID pandemic have now found it easier to hire and retain people as the end of the pandemic aid and relief programs have pushed people back to work. In addition to companies catching up on their pandemic staffing shortfalls, companies have slowed their hiring because consumer spending is predicted to dip in the final months of the year after a blockbuster summer. One exception to the slowdown in hiring by retailers is e-commerce giant Amazon, which plans to hire 250,000 full-time, part-time, and seasonal workers this season to ensure timely delivery of holiday gifts. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with a Republican narrative. It comes from Washington Examiner. The Biden administration and Democrats' slow-grind strategy for bringing inflation down is going to spoil consumers' holiday shopping. High interest rates are already tightening people's spending budgets, and now consumers are going to face less assistance and longer lines in stores because of the slowdown in hiring. And the Democratic narrative from Pennsylvania Capitol. The Biden administration's approach to cooling inflation and bringing the economy back is working, as evidenced by employment in the retail industry and sales growth staying steady all year. If anything, Republicans' refusal to go along with the president's plans for student loan forgiveness is responsible for hurting spending. With student loan payments back on, consumers are less likely to spend on purchases. 
Our final nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community says there's a 50% chance that the average American employee will work at least 31 hours per week in 2030. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, November 28th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.